Friends, I am really stoked to be with you all today, Um, a little bit more than usual because it's still the beginning of the Advent season and we're still looking ahead and waiting and expecting the the arrival of Christmas. I will tell you, I have always enjoyed the Christmas season, but I didn't really get into loving Advent and Christmas until I became a pastor and I will tell you why. A decent part of my day-to-day life as a minister has me addressing the ways in which the church has wounded people or hurt people, disregarded people, alienated people over the decades. And then it has me coming alongside them, sometimes coaxing them, but ultimately encouraging them toward a wholeness and a healing of those hurtful experiences and trying to convince them that Looking and considering God and communities faith in, uh, and communities of faith in a new light is worth their time and energy. And it's not all that I do as a pastor in today's society. There's a lot of other things that I do, but that has become a central part of it. And I don't want you to get me wrong. I love doing it. It's an honor to walk alongside people as they re-engage in their faith or as they engage God in ways that are newly meaningful for them throughout their lives. That said, at Christmas time, as a pastor, I get, to, I get more time to engage in a different kind of ministry. During Advent and Christmas, people willingly come to church with a hope and a gentleness in their eyes that's unique to this season. During this season, people who would otherwise not waste a minute looking in the direction of a steeple sanctuary will walk into a church facility and expect that they will be met with something good. And let me tell you, friends, not a lot of people always expect something good from the church most days. So that makes Advent and Christmas seasons truly special because it's not just me as a minister who has this opportunity. It's all of us as Christians in the world. We have this privilege to lead in bringing good things to the people who are around us, to lead in hope, to lead in peace, to lead in joy, and to lead in love, and to have our family and our friends and our neighbors join with us in this journey toward Christmas Day with an expectation and a gentleness in our eyes, expecting that exercising faith in these good things, in hope, peace, joy, and love, will actually result in something that is tangibly good in our lives and in the world. It's an amazing gift, and it's a wonderful privilege to be a Christian during this season, and I love it. Now, I recognize that there are parts to this season that don't always match these idealistic expectations, not for Christians and not for people who have no faith tradition. Sometimes the potential for good and hope in this season gets overwhelmed by the to-do lists, by the strain on our budgets, by our frenetic schedules, by our dysfunctional families. We can get so caught up in the go, 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 and in the do, 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 and in the get, 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 that December, we completely forget that there is a season being offered to us as a season of promise, a season where we are promised that change is coming to the day-to-day world that we unquestioningly accept to be normal. A season where God is approaching creation in a new way, incarnating, even now, a world that is more just, 
more peaceful, more loving, and then a God who is inviting us to be a part of it. We can forget that we in this season are preparing for the arrival of a baby. And anyone who has ever received a baby in their lives knows that once that baby comes, nothing goes back to the way it was before. Amen? Now that's the reason why we're participating in the Advent Conspiracy this year. Because conspiracy, by definition, is a gathering of people who plan together to rebel against or to overrun the powers that be, who challenge the status quo, who dare to create a new reality and a new normal. That's what a conspiracy is. And that's what we are doing this Advent. We are conspiring with God and with one another against the powers of this world that would have us perpetually distracted, perpetually amassing more, perpetually taking, perpetually resentful or hateful. We're rebelling against that so that we can instead lead in the hope and the peace and the joy and the love that is offered to us as Christians every single day, but particularly in this Advent season. And we're doing that by considering these four ways of participating in the conspiracy, of worshiping fully, spending less, giving more, and loving all. So I get that the idea of an Advent conspiracy might be new for some of us here today. This year might be the first year that many of us have heard of anything like this. But I will say this. The conspiracy to rebel against the status quo that is being maintained in this world, that is nothing new. And we see that particularly in our scripture for today. So if you will, uh, please join me. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get to talking about the Bible. God of light, we are grateful that you have called us here today to participate in your kingdom that is breaking into the world. We pray, Lord, that as we come to your scripture, that we will open our hearts and allow your words by the word of your son to change us, particularly this season. We ask, Lord, that we will understand your face and your character and your truth more today than we did yesterday, and that in turn, we will carry that truth in our day-to-day life, allowing it to break in that new kingdom that is coming through as we speak, as we think, as we act, whether we are active in doing it or not, Lord, we pray that we will be people who are ambassadors of that good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in our scripture passage for today, we're breaking from the series that we have been doing since the end of the summer, series in Luke. And for those of you who have been around the Christian church for a little while, I am so sorry, Kay, I'm gonna have to move this because, I, I mean, eventually I'm just gonna knock over the whole place. Um, and that would be amusing for you, but not so much for me. Uh, so for those of us who have been around the church for a while, but maybe even for those who are new to the Christian faith, this passage of Matthew is probably going to sound pretty familiar. Um, and whereas the, Luke, the Gospel of Luke takes the birth of Jesus from the perspective of Mary, the Gospel of Matthew 
looks at the birth of Jesus from the perspective of Joseph. And that's where we are today. We're going to go through Matthew 1, verses 18 through 24. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Let me just say, too, we sometimes skip over that. In that culture, if you named someone, they were yours. That's how adoption happened. So Jesus was adopted into Joseph's line. That's why sometimes you see those genealogies that trace Joseph, or Jesus through the line of Joseph. It's because he was adopted. All right, so you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Okay, how many of you have heard that scripture passage before? It's a pretty familiar one. Yeah. So friends, the conspiracies that are contained in this passage can be really easy for us to miss because this story about Jesus' birth is so familiar to us in one way or another. But this passage, don't miss it, is riddled with conspiracy after conspiracy. In particular, this passage is riddled with a conspiracy to increase peace in our world. So let's just start by looking at it on face value. If this story had played out in the normal way of the world, the way of the status quo, the way that it should have dictated to go by law, then it most likely would have been for G Joseph to have issued Mary a formal divorce decree in which he would publicly disclose that he was ending the marriage due to infidelity. And that would mean the normal way. It's a very public way. It's how the law instructed people to handle situations like this one. And it was one that brought a lot of shame, pain, and distrust amongst the community. It was very painful for everyone to experience this. But that's, that's how it should have happened. That was the normal way. But of course, that didn't happen. Because scripture says that even though Joseph was faithful to the law, which through other translations, they describe him as being a righteous man. Uh, one who did right by God. That's what righteous means. And so even though he was a righteous man and should be following this law that would have done the public decree, Scripture says he also wanted to spare Mary from being disgraced. So he made these plans to divorce her quietly without making a big scene. And my friends, that is conspiracy number one. Don't miss it. That is Joseph looking at the way, normal way that things should have gone, and him saying, yeah, but I can probably do this a little bit differently. With a little bit more compassion. With a little bit more gentleness. Joseph decided to go against that norm 
because it was going to spare a woman that he was supposed to be married to from experiencing disgrace. It was a compassionate conspiracy. And we have to hand it to Joseph. I think it was a pretty good one. I mean, given the rules that they were working within, right? It probably would have increased peace in both his life and in the life of Mary. It was a really good idea. But even though it was a good idea, even though it was a solid act of rebellion from the powers that would have assigned shame and social ridicule to a woman that he was intended to marry, that plan of Joseph's, that didn't happen either. Because the Bible says that just as Joseph had decided on that plan, just as he was about to go forward, Scripture says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. What? Are you kidding me? Here we are. Joseph has this great conspiracy to make things really nice and sort of peaceful, unbothered. He wasn't going to cause any ripples, right? He had already worked this out. And then an angel comes down and says, actually, we're just going to go ahead with the plan that we had. We're just going to go forward in keeping that wedding date. Conspiracy number two. The conspiracy was undone by the conspiracy of God. This was no small deal for the angel to ask Joseph to keep that wedding date. Because matters like infidelity during betrothal, they weren't things that were determined by personal preference. There were laws that dictated how these matters were supposed to be handled. And it wasn't just human law, it was God's law. And yet here is this angel of the Lord who is interceding and instructing Joseph to go against the law that he was known for being righteous in following so that he could participate in a plan that was going to bring scandal on his family. One commentator worded it this way, and I love it. The story makes it clear that this is no easy matter for Joseph or for us. What Joseph initially understands as the righteous thing to do following the law is challenged directly by the call of God to act precisely opposite to what the law had said. What happens, the commentator asks, when our notions of righteousness and justice come up against the ways of God's creative mercy? In Joseph, we meet one who risks becoming disobedient in the eyes of the world, becoming an outcast to his family and community, and dare we say, even becoming sinful and suffering for continuing with that wedding, all for the sake of being obedient to God's call. What Joseph initially understands to be the righteous thing to do is directly challenged by the call of God to act opposite to the law that everyone knew was normal, that everyone knew was the status quo. In other words, God's character of being merciful was more important than the power of the law that would have issued Mary a disgrace. And that's a priority that we as the church have often gotten wrong. 
of putting God's character before our laws, before our status quo, before our norms. I love that question that the commentator asks in the middle there. What happens when our notions of righteousness and justice come up against the ways of God's creative mercy? And you know what? The answer is the same every time. Wherever you read in scripture, the answer is the same. What happens is God wins. God's character always wins. So you see, my friends, no matter how much we conspire, like Joseph did, to do what we think is right or to do what we think will increase peace or will keep the waters steady, we must not forget that the God that we follow and serve is already in the midst of a great conspiracy against the powers that are here on earth. It's been happening for 2,000 years and since the beginning of creation. A conspiracy that brings Jesus into the manger, that leads him out into the streets of first century Palestine, that follows him up onto the cross, and that pours into our hearts still today, that calls us still today to be ambassadors of this God in the world. In the incarnation and the life of Jesus Christ, God is the ultimate conspirator. Now, one of the things that is difficult for us to remember about God's conspiracy to bring peace into the world is that God's plan of peace for the world did not necessarily make Joseph and Mary's life peaceful or uneventful. They carried forward through that wedding day in scandal and shame. Jesus was always going to be known as Mary's boy, not as Joseph's son. They carried forward through that wedding day and then they fled their homeland as refugees to Egypt to spare the life of this child that was doomed to die with all of the other children under the age of two. They spared the life of this son that had caused them so much confusion but no doubt so much joy only for Mary to then watch her son die the death of a common criminal 33 years later. Being called to join the conspiracy of God's peace in our world, it did not guarantee Joseph and Mary an easy, smooth, uneventful life where the only surprises were good things. And it doesn't guarantee us that kind of life either. But being included in this conspiracy of God's does offer us two things. One, joining that greater mission of God in the world to be agents of peace. It doesn't mean that our lives are going to be smooth, but we can participate in the greater peace coming into the world. And two, experiencing that deep center of peace that God generously and freely gives us in all moments, but particularly in the moments where the world around us is growing, groaning with that incarnation of God's kingdom. An incarnation that happened in the birth of Christ, but continues to happen through us. And so that's why we're also talking about spending less. There are many ways that we are being called as individuals and as a community to participate in God's coming kingdom. And I'm not trying to say that spending less is the only way. There's lots of ways. But in the face of this particular season that can be so excessive, spending less is a tool that we can use to deepen our connection with God's conspiracy work within the world. 
And we're only going to say a few words about spending less because I believe that I can't tell you how to do this. I will still try. One of the things that I want to say clearly is spending less is not an excuse for us to harbor selfishness. And it's not an excuse for us to not be generous. Spending less does not give us permission to be stingy. I loved the man who was speaking on the video and said, how would it feel to spend less? And he said, I'd feel like I was cheap. I get that. And I think that there is some truth into what he is saying about generosity. Spending less this season means recognizing that we are being asked as Christians to give out of that source of generosity that comes to us through the Spirit. This community in general has a lot to give. We can spend more. The question is, when we are spending what we have, are we doing it out of a way to prove ourselves, to buy someone's love, to tell them that, hey, look, I care about you so much, I got you this extravagant thing, Are we giving because we want other people to see us in a certain way? Or are we giving because we want people to experience the freedom of God's peace? Are we giving because we want people to think that somehow we are greater than we really appear to be? Or are we giving so that we can free someone or spare someone from disgrace? Spending less doesn't give you the right to be stingy, and please don't. But spending less directs our attention within ourselves differently. If you haven't heard me say it before, you will hear me say it a thousand times. The problem isn't what we do. The problem is who we are. The problem isn't that we're not spending enough. The problem is that we are selfish. Are we addressing the parts within us and pulling from that source that gives as God gives, generously, freely, with the intention to bestow peace, with the intention to bring us out of disgrace, with the intention to free us from shame? Spend all you can on those things. But don't spend more on the things that no one is ever going to use again that are just going to go into a closet somewhere and gather dust until that next white elephant party. Spend all you can on freeing people, on bestowing peace, hope, joy, and love. And don't worry about the rest of it. Friends, as we go out into the world this week, I invite you to consider with me how you are being called to participate in the conspiracy beyond spending less, Beyond worshiping fully, giving more, loving all, how can we be people who conspire with God to welcome this incarnate human into the life?